0: study this morning, uh, the book of Mark chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 28 through 44. So the rest of the chapter this morning, we're going to kind of break it up. There's about four different sections or so. It all goes together, but kind of broken up in four different ways this morning. Uh, But we're carrying on with where we left off in the last couple of weeks. We know last week, the Pharisees and the scribes had approached Jesus, and they were asking him question after question, after question and last week we covered two of those questions right question one had to do with paying taxes to Caesar again trying to trip up Jesus trying to entrap him and, and and find some fault in him and or his ministry so they could really do away with him and so it had to do with paying taxes but really what Jesus likened it to was really had to do with authority hey okay? and, and honoring both the state and God at the same time number two question number two was about the resurrection from the dead. Right. So uh, those that came up to him didn't believe in the resurrection, but again, trying to trip him up to test him. Uh, so utilizing marriage as an example, but also referring to the resurre- resurrection of the dead uh, speaking to the power of God and his ability to raise those in the end that he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so now we get question number three. Again, this was all back to back to back. And so now we get more of a personal conversation between a scribe and Jesus. Okay, it doesn't count, count out the fact that there were others there listening, paying attention, but now we get one lone scribe approaching Jesus to ask question number three. Okay, and we think as we read this we say, oh, that's not a bad question. He's got good intentions but we'll get into it in just a minute. And then as we move on, we're going to see a few other stories and how Jesus kind of all brings this together this morning. But let's read together. Let's start in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And then we'll uh, read through probably about verse 34. And then we'll jump into it. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So there's question number three. Which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And so if we, we're going to pause there, actually, for a moment. Let's get into this, this portion really quick, because it's pretty important. So one scribe comes up to Jesus and says, What is the most important commandment? Now, it may seem like an easy question, right? An easy law for Jesus. But what we need to understand is at this time, there are about 613 different commandments, laws, or rules that the Pharisees and religious leaders felt that they needed to adhere to. 613 that they found in the Mosaic Law, in the scripture that they had. That they need to do it here too and so what we read is that this one scribe comes up to Jesus and says which out of all of those is the most important now so it seems like a good conversation but what does Matthew tell us Matthew tells us that this was not just a simple question in the book of Matthew in the same story in Matthew's account this scribe was asking this question to test Jesus Okay, so it was specifically designed to test him, maybe to test his knowledge again of scripture, but whatever it might be. The question before Jesus is, which, which of those, all those commandments, is the most important? And so Jesus' answer, he goes right back to scripture. And what does scripture say? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. But in the way that Jesus answers it in Mark's account, he adds with all your strength as well. And so if we look at those four aspects, heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we look at the heart, it's our personality, it's our character, right? It's our emotional state, it's our intention. We've talked about before that we need to take our thoughts captive, as 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says. Take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, because if we don't take it captive here, those thoughts, whatever it might be, and, and more often than not, it Because of our sinful nature, it's not going to be a great thing. It's going to work its way down to our heart. And so our heart, or excuse me, our thoughts go down to our heart, and that breeds emotion, that breeds reaction, that breeds intention. And if we don't have a lot of self-control, we're going to act from that state. We're going to act out of our heart. So our heart is our personality, our character, our emotions, our intention. Our soul, what is our soul? It's our life breath. We just sung it this morning. The breath in our lungs comes from God. We spoke about it last week in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and, the, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Our soul is our self. It's our animating principle. In fact, what I, I love another definition. It's our actuating cause of life. It's just who we are. It's our soul we love the lord our god with all of our heart with all of our animating principle our self our life but he says we love the lord our god with all of our mind as well our intellect our knowledge and then jesus adds our strength our ability our power and so what is all this saying what is jesus saying love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul all your mind all your strength love god with everything everything about who you are and what makes up you in the physical, in the spiritual, in the emotional. You love God with everything. So our decisions should be based on loving God. Our desires should stem from God's love for us. Our thoughts should derive from God and his word. Our actions should be motivated to display God's love. Everything about who we are, what we say, what we do, our thoughts and our intentions to derive from God above and his word. His love for us and our love for others. In fact, it says in in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Now, this is a little it's a little intense, and there's some verbiage here that I'm not gonna apologize for because it's in the word of God, but I'm just gonna say it's a little intense. So, young ones, maybe just Cover your ears for a moment. But in Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 41, it says this about what we're talking about. God speaking says, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel on each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And so, in that day, because they didn't have the written word yet, he is giving them instruction on what they can do to remember who God is. And in this case, it was a little tassel that they hung from, you know, their clothing that every time they'd see that blue string or that tassel or feel it, it would be a remembrance of who God is and what he's done for them, how he saved them from Egypt. He saved them from bondage. He brought them or is bringing them into the promised land. Everything about who God is, that little remembrance just a, a single thread would be a reminder because without that reminder, what is our intention to do? Now again, it was, it was a harsh word, and I, I won't repeat it over and over, but that's our intention. Our sinful nature is to do just that, to go after our own desires, our own lusts, our own pleasures, our own sinful nature, whatever it might be. And in every way, it's not going to be directed towards God unless we constantly give ourselves a reminder as to who God is and what he's done for us. So... The question before us all this morning is what do you have in your life that serves as a reminder of the goodness and faithfulness of God to you? It may not be a blue tassel on your clothing that you wear every day. I get that. That's not our culture, right? But what do you have that will serve as a reminder every day, constantly, wherever you go, of the goodness of God, of what he's done for you, his faithfulness to you, Maybe it's something to think about. Maybe, I mean, if it's the Word of God, you carry it with you everywhere you go. If you literally have your Bible with you, what a great reminder, right? It even has sometimes a little built-in tassel. You know, there's a little bookmark here. But maybe a lot of us don't carry our physical Bible with us everywhere. So what is it going to be for you? Now, because we have the full Word of God... The beautiful thing is we can take that word of God and embed it into our life. You know, Psalm 119 tells us, in fact, I remember memorizing this verse that speaks to memorizing the scripture back when I was in junior high. I was in seventh grade and this, uh, this verse was, uh, I was at a Christian school and it was emblazoned on one of our boards uh, in the hallway and I remember stopping and reading it and, and it just immediately it resonated with me back in 7th grade. And it's Psalm 119, verse 11, which says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You know, in other translations will read, Your word I have treasured in my heart. But your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What does that mean? It just means we're reading scripture, our eyes are on scripture all the time, that it's within us, it's a part of us. And so no matter what we do or what we set our eyes on or whatever it is that we're doing, our mind is on the things of Christ, the word of God. You know, in fact, if we go back to Deuteronomy, what Jesus just spoke to this scribe about, lifting for him the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength just in the next few verses it speaks to the reminder for us for us it's that blue tassel it's that string and this is what it says in deuteronomy chapter six and just in the following verses verses six through nine it says and these words that i command you today shall be shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What a great reminder to take the word of God with us wherever we go. Now, some Jews then and even today will take that literally. They'll go to what's known as today the the Western Wall in, in Jerusalem. It's known as the Wailing Wall a wall of prayers they'll go you've probably seen famous pictures of it and they'll literally wrap the scripture around their arms they'll literally wear uh the scripture around their head so it's between their eyes and they'll go to the wall and they'll just spend time in prayer and then they'll write prayers and they'll stick them into the wall and so some will take this scripture literally but but what does it say i mean how many of you have been in education we're just praying for our teachers When you are required to teach something, you need to know that content, don't you? If you're going to pass this content along to the next generation or your students or those around you, you need to know it so you can clarify for them what it is that you want them to know. So the best way to learn something is to teach it. And my students hated me in, in school when I made them do that. I said, I said, the best way, you can't just sit here and listen to me the whole time, so you get up here and you teach the rest of the class this content. on um, Whatever it was, it might have been Civil War or World War II or whatever. Oh, they hated it. They didn't want to stand in front and have to, because they had to learn it, but they had to learn it well enough not to just circle C on a test or fill in a blank, but they had to know the content because they were responsible for giving this information away. So they had to really... Understand it and know it. It's different when you have to impart it, when you have to teach it. So, again, the question what do we have? What are you doing to keep the Word of God embedded before your eyes? What's your reminder of the importance of God's Word and His commandments in your life? So, let's move on. The scribe came up and, and asked Jesus, What is the greatest commandment? Out of all those commandments, what's the greatest one? But here Jesus. Gives them two. Gives them the greatest one, but he also follows up with one that is just as important. He says in verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So again, the greatest commandment, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, speaking to unity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." What an amazing thing to go together. Jesus says, yes, there is the greatest commandment, but just like it, just next to it, is how you love other people. So in another counter with the Pharisees, in a, in a separate occurrence, Jesus was speaking to them and had a very similar conversation. And we actually read about this in Luke chapter 10. Pharisees had come up, and and again, we're having conversations with Jesus, and, and one of them stood up, this one labeled a lawyer, stands up. And putting him to the test says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered him and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this man knew the law. He knew the great commandments, right? So Jesus continues and says, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love like myself? And so from there, Jesus goes on to give one of his greatest stories, in my opinion, ever told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if, you've heard, if you're familiar with the Good Samaritan story, a man is robbed, looted, beaten up, and left for dead on the side of the road. And three people come by that are given the opportunity to help. First one comes by as a priest. And so if we put this in context of everything we've been talking about, right, jesus's response to the pharisees and priests and scribes and elders etc so the first man to come by is a priest one that probably should help but he goes around and passes him by and goes on with his day second man that comes by is a levite again works in the temple cares for the temple very similar to the priest they work hand in hand comes across the man bloody bruise left for dead goes around, passes him by. So the two men who should know the law, should love God with all their heart, and others as themselves, pass him by. But the third is the Samaritan. Now if you know your cultural history between the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't like each other. They're not fond of one another. They don't coexist. In fact, the Jews would typically go around the Samaritan villages or towns or Samaria so they wouldn't come into contact with the Samaritans. So here a Samaritan comes along and looks at this man and he stops and he helps. But he doesn't just do what's quickly needed so he can go on with his day, right? He picks him up. He cleans him up. He brings him into town, he brings him to an inn, he pays for his care, pays for food, and then says, gives gives the innkeeper enough money, and says, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll pay you whatever you, you need. So he doesn't just take care of him, he goes the extra mile. Jesus uses this story as a prime example of loving others. Yes, we pray for one another. Yes, we care for one another. Yes, we should love each other. But by this example of the good Samaritan, we go the extra mile to show people the love of God. Because if we go right back to the theme verse of Mark that we've been studying, Mark chapter 10 verse 44, 45, excuse me. Mark 10:45, Jesus came not to be served but to serve and give his life, sacrifice for others. So loving God is easy to do. We can say we love God. Who's going to check us on that? But how about loving your neighbor? You can say you love your neighbor, but I think by the example Jesus gave, we need to show that love, sacrifice for others in how we are presenting Jesus and his grace and his word and love to other people. So in verses 32 through 34, the scribe talking to Jesus responds, You are right, teacher. Basically confirms that the answer Jesus gave was right on. But I love his answer in verse 33. He goes on to say that you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And you shall love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. But he adds, It is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What a great statement. In fact, Jesus confirms this statement. He says, you have said well, you have answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You know, all these conversations with the scribes and Pharisees and elders, here is one that is just right there. So close. He says, you're not far because you know it now what you have to believe it you have to live it you have to accept it not just claim you know the answers but verse 33 the the scribe says it's much better loving God and loving others is much more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices we read this in scripture time and time again in fact it's one of our core verses as a church in our justice and our service and love for the community around us, we live out Micah chapter six verse eight. In Micah six eight, it says, "He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God." We live out that love for God. In First Samuel chapter fifteen verse twenty two, says, "Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." To obey is better than sacrifice. Meaning you can be the greatest religious person in all the world. You can talk the talk. You can even walk the walk. As you walk into church, as if you drop in your offering in the bucket, as you read your Bible, as you know the verses, it can speak the Christianese language. You can look the part and do all the right things in the church building. But if you're not obeying Christ outside of the church building, it's all for naught. We are to take our love for God and others outside of these walls. To obey God, and what, he, what did Jesus just say? How do we obey God? We love God with all of us and others. And where are the others? Out there. <laughs> Pick a wall and point at it. It's out there. They're out there. That's where we have to take this. Very similarly in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire, God speaking, steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What is he saying? Don't bring your sacrifices. Don't bring your offerings. For us, don't bring your tithe. Don't bring your giving. don't, Don't do the church thing and leave it there. That's not the sum of the Christian life. We have to live it out. The obedience to God is not coming to church and stopping there. We need church. We do not forsake the gathering. That's why we're here. It's why we come every week. It's why we read our Bibles and why we commit it to memory. And we do the things we need to do here to be equipped in the word of God so that we can then what? Go and live our life in Christ outside these walls. As we go to work, we are loving others. As we go to school, we're loving others. As we're going about our days, we're cooking dinner, we're loving others. As we're typing emails to other people, we're loving others. As we're doing whatever it is God has called us to do, we are loving others the way God needs us to love them. Religious practice does not and will never take the place of obedience to the Lord. This is what Jesus is saying. This has been his interaction with the religious elite in Israel and in Jerusalem his whole ministry this is what he's been saying and now he takes an opportunity to make that known if it hasn't been known to this point it's gonna be known now in verses 35 through 37 at least in Mark's account Jesus will condemn the Pharisees he condemns the religious elite now If you want a greater version of this, then I suggest you read Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 dedicates an entire chapter to the condemnation that Jesus is about to speak to the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, etc. It's the seven woes chapter. He goes on to condemn them in seven ways in how they've been doing things and living life wrong according to god's word so mark summarizes that in verses 35 through 37 mark says and jesus taught in the temple he said how can the scribes say that the christ is the son of david david himself is the holy spirit david himself in the holy spirit declared the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i put your enemies under your feet david himself calls him lord so how is he his son and the great throng heard him gladly so, Jesus, what he does now is he turns the table. Back to back to back, the Pharisees and everybody else were attacking him, trying to test him, trying to entrap him with all these questions. So, Jesus now is going to turn the tables. And he starts with a little teaching, he starts with a little revelation. He exposes the truth of who he is using Scripture to the face of the Pharisees. He asks them very point blank. Who is the Christ, the Messiah? How is he the son of David? In Matthew's account, we're told that the Pharisees asked him, or Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So they knew scripture. They knew that the Christ, the Messiah, was the son of David. And so Jesus goes on to quickly explain that, How can he be the son of David when David said in the spirit, he's my Lord? So how can Messiah be the Lord of David and also the son of David? I love Jesus's response. This is what he says. He uses Psalm, again, the scripture, Psalm 110, verse 1. When David said in his spirit, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So very plainly, Jesus declares this uh, chronologically. Jesus is the son of David in the flesh. He is the son of David because he came after David in the flesh, but in the spirit divinely, he is David's Lord because Jesus always was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus always was. Spiritually, divinely, He is the Lord of David. And this verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, would be repeated throughout the divine authorship of God. It would be spoken through Peter in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews would speak this verse in chapters 1 and 10. Paul would proclaim this verse in Romans chapter 1 that there is something about Jesus being the Lord of David and the Son of David that is spoken numerous times, multiple times throughout the New Testament. In Romans 1, 1 through 1-4, Paul, he begins his chapter, or excuse me, his, his letter to the Roman church. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So multiple times it is declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus rode into Jerusalem fulfilling scripture that the Pharisees should have known. Zechariah 9 9, right? He rode in on that donkey. That's the Messiah. But they always claimed him to be this Political king that would take over after David and establish that political kingdom. But Jesus here is saying, no, the Messiah is Lord, and I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. So Jesus continues his teaching and now condemns these rulers. Verses 38 through 40. Mark sums it up. So he basically clarified his authority, his power, and his lordship Therefore, only he has the ability to condemn the religious elite for their disobedience to God's law. And throughout Matthew 23, these seven woes and what Mark sums up right here basically, it's lordship versus servanthood. How you are supposed to act versus how they've been acting. And he points that out. They were all about appearances applause and accolades he says in verse 38 beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplace they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts they love their appearance they loved being the ruling class they loved how people would show them honor but it was all for appearance sake In Matthew 23, verse 11, it says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. So bringing them right back to where they should be, not how they were acting. They were full of deceit and greed. In verse 40, it says, Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And in Matthew's account, in chapter 23, verse 27, it says, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a harsh word, calling them hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So the religious elite spent years trying to attract entrap, discredit, and destroy Jesus. Now, in one declaration and one teaching, Jesus reveals their true nature in front of them and in front of the masses. Thus ends their questions. Matt, uh, Mark tells us, Matthew does as well, that they no longer ask him any more questions. They're done. They, they can't entrap him. And so what do they do now? For the rest of his ministry, they seek out every single way they can possibly arrest him, try him, convict him, and put him to death. So let's finish chapter 12 this morning. One more story. So I know there's a lot here this morning, but I promise you this will all come together. This will all be clarified. There is there is a theme to this section. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about how this chapter ends for us is Jesus now goes and has a seat, and he observes as people are coming in to the temple complex. They're bringing their offerings, they're bringing their sacrifices. Because in the temple complex, there were 13 trumpets. Not the musical instrument, but trumpet-shaped offering. They're not bins. They were metal that people could place. And they were each designed, designated for a certain type of tithe or offering that they were, people were supposed to bring. And he was watching, it says in verse 41, and he sat opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box Many rich people put in large sums. So if these metal trumpet-shaped offering boxes, if the rich were walking up with all their sum of money, have you ever dropped a large amount of coins into a metal container? Could you imagine the sound that would give off, right? And so he was watching how they were giving. So you can imagine these rich would take all their offering and then just drop it in and just let the sound reverberate throughout the whole temple complex. And as Jesus just pointed out, they love the accolades, They love the applause. They love the appearance of sacrifice and giving, right? But he says in verse 42, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. All that she had to live on were two small copper coins or mites. Basically, those two copper coins probably was about 164th of a day's wage. So, maybe a couple bucks in our day and age was all she had to live on. A couple dollars. Think about a standard monthly income of what you would make today in a month. Probably surmounted to about two bucks of what she had. So obviously she was poor and she was a widow. So she literally had next to nothing And essentially had lost everything. But yet, here she is with what she could give. Now, she had a choice, didn't she? She had two. And according to the monetary economics of the day, one of those was enough to buy basically one meal for yourself. So she had a choice. She could have put one in, kept one, and provided for herself. But what did Jesus observe? she gave both she gave all that she had because her heart her mind was trusting in the Lord completely that he was going to provide for her in his way that she literally gave everything that she had what a beautiful depiction this contrast and this is what we want to focus on this is what we want to clarify in all these stories we mentioned today This final depiction of sacrificial service and giving is such a clear distinction from the condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes that he just talked to. What does all this come down to? How we love the Lord our God with what? All of our heart. All of our soul. All of our mind. All of our strength. Everything. And this poor widow was just now a physical representation of what Jesus had just taught to everybody else. You love God with everything, you give God everything, and you trust in Him. And you let Him work out the rest. What a beautiful picture. In fact, this could have been one of the widows that Jesus just condemned the Pharisees for. He said in verse 40 that... You Pharisees who devour widows' houses. This could have been one of the widows they took advantage of and lined their own pockets with. That may have been why she was poor. We don't know for sure, but I would like to think Jesus knew. But even scripture says in Exodus 22 that the Pharisees should have known you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. In Deuteronomy 27, it says, "Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. They need, they should have known what they should have done. But here a widow approaches, gives her offering, she gives everything, and she is commended by God. So, what does this come down to? All this comes down to one word character. Your character. How are you going to love the Lord your God with everything about you? That comes down to your character. How are you going to love others is your character. You, You see that now? How we love and serve God is a testament to our character and obedience. We know there will be rewards in heaven. If we know scripture, we know there will be rewards. But we love God anyways, with everything. How we love and serve others is a testimony to God's grace in us. There's no guarantee of approval from others. Loving others is not going to guarantee that you're going to be loved in return. In fact, what you, when you love others, you may very well be ignored for it. You may be hated for it. You may be reproved for it doing what you were supposed to do out of obedience to the Lord. There's no guarantee of rewards. But you do it anyways out of obedience to God and what he calls you to do. We do not live our life by quid pro quo. You may hear it in other words. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right? Sometimes we live our life that way. I'm going to do this for you, and in our mind, in our heart, what are we saying? That hopefully they'll do something for me in return. We can't have that mentality. We do not love and serve with the expectation that we're going to get something in return. We cannot operate that way. We are not called to operate that way. When that widow gave her two might, she gave everything. What was she going to expect in return? Absolutely Nothing but she was giving out of her heart. You know, there's a quick analogy I wanted to share. You know, and I, I don't typically do this often, but I was scrolling through Facebook and I came across our uh, group page that we follow in our community. It's called, uh, it's a talk page where people in the community will share uh, resources or ask questions or whatever else. And, but more often than not, it's a page where people like to go on and just rant, right? They blow off steam. And one of the posts was about how frustrated this woman was when she went to Stater Brothers and there were zero carts available in the store because every person left their cart in the parking lot. And if you were alive yesterday, it was hot. It was scorching hot. And so she went to social media to express her anger and frustration for people not returning their shopping cart. Now, here's something I came across. And I responded with something I found one time. And maybe you've heard this before. And if not, it's, it's kind of interesting. Take it for what it is. But I read that the shopping cart is the litmus test on whether or not we can be self-sufficient as humanity, as a civilization. Think about it. If you don't return your shopping cart, what law are you breaking? None. None. If you don't return your shopping cart, there's no consequence. In fact, it's kind of expected that a lot of people don't do it. In fact, if they're way far from their car, they'll find maybe one of those little center dividers like I've done before. You'll take the front two wheels, prop it up on the little center divider so it doesn't roll away. At least you're being helpful that way, right? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) But what about on the opposite side? Are you mandated to return the shopping cart? No, but it's a nice thing to do. Do people expect you to? Some do, some don't. Is there a reward if you return your shopping cart to the nice stall? Absolutely not. At Aldi, yes, you get your quarterback, right? (laughs) Good point. Reprove, thank you. But more often than not, you don't get a reward, and there's no consequence if you don't return it. What does it come down to? who you are and what you want to do for others. Are you about yourself? I've got my schedule. I've loaded my goodies. I can leave my car and get on with my day. Or can I take 30 seconds and walk it back to the stall to maybe bless somebody else? Whether it does or not, doesn't matter. I'm gonna do what I need to do. But anyways, I responded with this little story about returning your shopping cart is a litmus test to who we are as a civilization. It's interesting. It's an interesting point. I got a few responses. I won't repeat what some of them said. But but in, in, this is what it comes down to. It's character. How we love God and how we love others is a matter of character. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, it says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. What does that mean? Character must be learned. Character is developed over time. It doesn't come automatically. But through the endurance, producing character, God-honoring character, that's going to produce hope in us, and that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why do we love God and love others? Because He first loved us, as First John 4 states. And I'll remind us one more time of Mark 10:45. "For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So regardless of who we are or what we have, we love God and we love others. We say that, church, we love God and we love others. One more time, we love God, we love others. That's everything. It's everything, amen? It's everything. Father, we come before you now and we just thank you again for your word. Lord Jesus, it's a lot. But I pray, Father God, by your Holy Spirit that you have clarified exactly what we need to hear today. That Father, you continue to speak to us in what we need to know What we need to change, what we need to do to live our life, so that we live out the greatest commandment, which is to love you with all of us, everything about us. And right next to it is to go out and love others in a sacrificial, loving way. To give others the hope that we have. You loved us by sending your son to sacrifice his life and die on the cross for us. Father, may we now go and sacrifice our lives for others so they have the hope of salvation in Jesus' name.